Welcome to the Outperform Cancer Podcast, where we identify anti-cancer strategies found in peer-reviewed scientific research. My name is Mary Beth Gilliam, and I'm a metastatic breast cancer patient searching for ways to outperform cancer. I'm very grateful for the excellent standard care I've been given, but I'm also not satisfied with standard care results. I think it's possible for cancer patients to do better, and the people who can help us are cancer researchers. In each episode, we talk to a well-regarded published researcher who's focused their work on a potential anti-cancer strategy that could be used with conventional treatment. Visit the Outperform Cancer website at outperformcancer.com to see all of our anti-cancer strategies and to sign up for our newsletter, which will alert you to new strategies as they're posted. Today, we're speaking to Professor Dr. Katherine Schmitz about exercise and cancer. I asked Dr. Schmitz here to talk to us about exercise as medicine, and I challenge you to stay tuned for the next 10 minutes and see if you're not motivated to rethink exercise as an important anti-cancer strategy. Just how much can exercise impact your outcomes? Research suggests that on average, it can provide about a 30 to 50% risk reduction in recurrence. That range is derived from many different studies, and it takes into account that some cancers respond better to exercise than others. For example, a study of 1.4 million people found that esophageal cancer seems highly responsive, while other research for colon and breast indicates super strong benefits for preventing recurrence as well as improving mortality. But after considering all this data, years of research, thousands of studies, the research community is citing an average of 30 to 50% risk reduction in recurrence. And that's a very big deal. To help you understand just how big a deal it is, let's consider the effectiveness of the very popular breast cancer drug, anastrozole, which is used to treat hormone-positive breast cancer. According to breastcancer.org, anastrozole can reduce the risk of hormone receptor-positive breast cancer recurrence by 50%. So, in some cases, people who are exercising regularly are seeing risk reductions that rival cancer drugs. So, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that drugs can be replaced by exercise. I am suggesting that exercise is a very powerful anti-cancer strategy that can amplify other anti-cancer strategies like taking drugs such as anastrozole. So the question is not whether you want to exercise, but are you willing to walk away from one of the most impactful anti-cancer strategies that exist? I want to leave you with that question while I introduce Dr. Schmitz. Dr. Schmitz is a professor in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. She serves as the Associate Director of Catchment 
Area Research. She's the co-leader of the Biobehavioral Cancer Center Control Program and the director of the Exercise Oncology Initiative for the Hillman Cancer Center. She's published over 350, yes, 350 scientific peer-reviewed papers, some in very prestigious journals such as JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine, and the Journal of Clinical Oncology. The reason I asked Dr. Schmitz to be on the podcast is not just because she's accomplished, but it's because she's an authority on using exercise to improve outcomes, even amongst advanced cancer patients. And she has experienced cancer through her wife, Sarah. So she's been through it personally as well. Her experience actually led her to write a book titled Moving Through Cancer, which provides cancer patients with a roadmap for how to exercise through cancer from diagnosis to preventing recurrence. She is the winner of numerous awards, most notably the Distinguished Scientist Award from the Society of Behavioral Medicine, the Citation Award from the American College of Sports Medicine, and the Clinical Research Professorship from the American Cancer Society. She is the past president of the American College of Sports Medicine, and she is just dynamite. You're going to love her. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Katherine Schmitz. Dr. Schmitz, thank you so much for coming today. We really appreciate your time. You're so welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. I know um, the patients out there are going to be very excited to hear about what you have to say. And I'd like to start talking about your personal goal. I know you are very committed to hitting this personal goal before you retire. Can you talk about what that is? Sure, absolutely. So um, the goal is to make exercise standard of care in the setting of oncology. And we've set a goal of making that happen by 2029. 2029. And uh, I know that you're very passionate about this. Obviously, if this is your personal goal and you're you're dedicated to not retiring until you till you hit it, which I'm going to hold you to and I'm going to help you do it. Um, but I know that you're very passionate about this. So can you convince us that it's an important anti-cancer strategy? Because I know there are a lot of people out there that have heard about exercise uh, in the past. Yes, I know it's good for me. But I, I really think that they're not thinking about exercise as an anti-cancer strategy. So what do we know about the impact of exercise on cancer in terms of fighting existing tumors as well as overall survival for cancer patients? Uh, so there's sort of um, three time points that we might talk about. Um, and uh, the first is primary prevention. So how do we, you know, what do we know? about um, whether uh, exercise, physical activity has an effect on reducing the likelihood that someone would uh, have an incident or new cancer. And uh, the evidence base there comes from uh, animal models as well as from observational studies. We don't have any clinical trials in this space because cancer takes a really long time to develop. Uh, and so the evidence that we have from clinical trials actually has to do with understanding whether or not an exercise intervention alters uh, biomarkers that are thought to tell us that the cancer is, is 
more likely to develop versus less likely to develop. So that's the type of evidence that we have in the in the prevention space. And um, uh, the the evidence is really striking. Um, and you know the evidence goes back a long way as well. So uh, the first study that I'm able to identify that looked at this issue was an observational study from 1911. Wow. Um, and yes, um, which showed that uh, individuals who had more active um, uh, uh, jobs uh, as compared to the more sedentary upper class in Minnesota at that time were less likely to develop colon cancer. Um, mm. And so um, we have had um, stunning observational evidence, particularly in the area of physical activity and colon cancer for over 100 years uh, at this time. And so um, uh, I am absolutely convinced that being more physically active is associated with reduced risk for onset of colon cancer. Uh, we also have beautiful observational evidence for uh, uh, breast cancer. Interestingly, we do not have this evidence for prostate cancer. Um, the evidence for prostate cancer comes in after the diagnosis of prostate cancer. Physical activity is very good after you've had the diagnosis, but we don't actually show a whole lot with uh, prevention with, with prostate cancer. But there are actually um, seven common cancers. Oh goodness, don't ask me to repeat exactly which ones. They are. It's like trying to remember the dwarves, you know, <laughs> grumpy or something, you know. Um, so, but there are seven common cancers that are, you know, they are esophageal, uh, cervical, endometrial, breast, colon. Um, uh, you know, that's okay. You and there's there's one more in there somewhere. Um, maybe kidney. I'm not entirely sure. I should I should know this, right? You um, know what? We'll put that in the show notes because I know you've given us, uh, you've given me a beautiful chart um, yeah. that we can refer to, and so we'll make sure that those on the website and in the show notes. I also need more coffee. So um, <laughs> anyway, um, so um, so we have this really stunning evidence, and and um, for primary prevention, we know that the. Uh, order of magnitude we're talking about here is about 10 to 15 percent reduction in risk. Um, when we get into um, the cancers and whether the cancers grow, the most beautiful evidence we have here is in animal models. And the animal model data really is stunning that shows us that if we exercise animals and then compare them to uh, animals that are not given a running wheel, not given access to any exercise in their cages, um, the reduction in tumor growth in the animals that exercise is anywhere from 30 to 70%, depending on the experiment and the particular uh, model of cancer that we're looking at. But really just remarkable changes in tumor growth, very consistent study after study after study in the animal models. Uh, the observational evidence in this area is also really, really compelling. Um, we have beautiful observational human, you know, humans being followed over a long period of time in cohort studies, humans being compared in case control studies. Um, uh, we have beautiful evidence that shows us that we have a, a substantive reduction in recurrence of breast, colon, and prostate cancers uh, on the order of 30 to 50%, depending on the particular study. Um, uh, for individuals who are regularly physically active versus those who are not regularly physically active. Um, Can I ask a quick question? Sure. Um, so what you were saying then, I believe, is if I've had breast cancer, which we know I have personally. So if I had breast cancer, 
Um, and I was a regular exercise -er, Mm -hmm. then I could expect a risk reduction of recurrence of between 30 to 50 percent is that what I'm what I just said that's that's what you just said I just I I love that that's what you said because that's an incredible amount right right and so so let me let me let me talk to you a little bit about the the nature of the evidence I know that we had planned to talk about this at some point but I really feel sort of compelled to explain this when we're talking about whether there is actually like, sh- why should your listeners believe me? You know, what it, what is what is the the quality of the evidence? You know, did I just come up with this in my garage this weekend, or is this you know something that's you know well established in, in the science? So I want to make sure that people really understand the the different types of evidence that can be brought to bear in this in this uh, argument. Um, um, it, there's a triangle of this, and um, I was taught about this by the, you know, inimitable uh, Henry Blackburn, who was one of my mentors at the University of Minnesota when I trained there. And um, he talks about the three beauties, and the three beauties being clinical science. So those are the clinical trials, okay? The bench science, which is the animal model studies and the petri dish studies, right? and the population science, the observational science. And the truth is that we don't really feel absolutely like we're ready to bang the gavel and say we're done with a topic until we have all three. But sometimes we don't have the option of having all three. Sometimes it just doesn't exist. It's not a possibility. So let me explain a little more about that. So with the uh, tumor growth and recurrence data, we have animal model data that is experimental and, you know, really like, uh, you know, the highest quality data we can have is a randomized controlled trial, right? So these are randomized controlled trials, but they're in animals and animals, animal models, while they are extremely important and really help us, like we're able to do things in animal models, we cannot possibly do in humans because their lives are shorter, you know, because things happen quicker in that model. So um, as a result, uh, we, we can get some answers but animal models do not perfectly recapitulate what's happening in the human being. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have, an, there are a number of reasons why those models are wrong, are, you know, are imperfect. They don't give us the full answer. And we see this over and over again, Mary Beth, because we see, you know, we have results in animal models and then we stand up clinical trials and it doesn't behave the same way in human beings. Yeah. And that just, that just happens over and over and over again. And that is your evidence that the animal model does not perfectly recapitulate what's going on in the human. And so we need to know what's going on in humans. Mm -hmm. And so cancer is something that develops over the course of a decade or more. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that we can look at human beings and not be able to, you know, if we can't follow them for a decade, which funding does not last a decade for any particular uh, uh, grant that I've ever had, um, uh, then we can do observational studies. And we follow people over time and um, we watch and wait and see what happens and we observe what happens. Um, And those studies are very powerful because we can have thousands of people. My favorite study that I quote all the time about exercise and primary prevention of cancer had a million, 1.44 million people in it. So we can put together these enormous, enormous groups of people. And it's hard to argue that you really are seeing something real when you have those kinds of numbers, right? But unfortunately, those studies are flawed because those studies, um, you know, mean that you know people did whatever physical activity they did. It wasn't controlled, 
Mm -hmm. You know, they are self-reporting or we're getting, you know, accelerometry data to tell us what kind of physical activity they're doing. And, you know, we don't get to control how much physical activity they're doing. So they're uncontrolled follow-up studies, basically. Yeah. Right. And then the third type of trial that we can, or study we can do is a randomized controlled trial. And this is the most tightly controlled, highest gold standard that we have uh, in order to um, uh, you know, move forward in our mm -hmm. scientific understanding. And they, although it's the gold standard, it's extremely limiting. Yeah. Because I can't follow people until they have cancer. I can't. <laughs> it's not possible the way that funding is currently organized because it would take 10 to 15 years of follow-up. And who's going to sign up for that study? Yeah. Well, how do you actually get human beings? If it turns out that it's, it's easier to get rats to run on a wheel than it is to get human beings to go to an exercise class three yeah. times a week. Right. Uh, so... Um, so we have to pay attention as we're looking at the evidence. You've asked me, what is the evidence? The evidence comes from these three different areas, right? Yeah. And what we try to do as much as we can is bring those three together to the extent that we can. We try to make sure that we have evidence from all three, and we try to see if we can triangulate across these three types of evidence in order to convince ourselves that something is really happening. And I am telling you that we have evidence from all three of these, or at least two of the three for prevention, for tumor growth, and for progression of cancer. Wow. That's impressive. So in terms of a frame of reference, if in general, uh, I'm, uh, I'm someone who has experienced cancer, and you mentioned, you know, 30 to 50% reduction in um, progression or recurrence, right? Um, so Help me understand, how does that relate to some of the drugs that are out there? I mean, it seems as though that is a, um, you know, if a drug performed that well, would people be jumping up and down? They absolutely would be jumping up and down. And so, you know, if exercise, I mean, it's, it's a quote from the exercises medicine movement, which, you know, started at ACSM in 2007, that you know, if uh, we could put the benefits of exercise into a pill, it would be prescribed by every doctor at every encounter. And it wouldn't be just about cancer, but um, we're talking about cancer today. So it would be prescribed by oncologists. Um, the, the thing that we have to pay attention to is that exercise, while it has physiologic benefits that are very important in relation to cancer prevention and control, um, it is a behavior and it is a volitional behavior. And um, undoubtedly, there are people listening to this who are jumping up and down that they are getting the benefits that, you know, they thought they were getting from, from, uh, from exercise. And there are other people listening saying, oh, uh, does that mean I have to move? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, shaping, shaping that behavior and helping people to figure out how to get this done is, um, you know, raison d'etre at this point. It's got to be, you know, one of the most important things that we do. Yeah, uh, and and that circles back to your personal goal, yeah. um, because you know this this to me, of course, I'd heard my whole life. Yes, exercise is great for you. Everyone should exercise, and and you get used to hearing these messages. But what was surprising to me when I was diagnosed um, as metastatic in 2020, and I started to do more and more of my own research, was just how compelling the research is, and that exercise is medicine, and that and 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 so even those people who who find it 
difficult to exercise. And I have to say, I still find it way, way easier to sit at my computer and do research than I do to get outdoors and, and do exercise. That's why I got a dog who requires exercise every day to force me to go out. Um, but, you know, the evidence does seem so compelling that it's, it, to me, that's what gets me off the couch. And I'm hoping that as we have listeners um, to this podcast today, that that's what helps them get off the couch, that this isn't just something that's a nice to have, that this is something that's truly going to make a difference in your overall survival. <laughs> Yeah, so there's there's two things I want to respond to with what you've said. One is that there actually is research to show that dog owners um, actually have better health because they're walking their dogs on a regular basis. So good on you for the dog. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so walk your dog, get a dog. If you don't like working out, get a dog. That That is a tr tried and true way of getting people to walk more. Um, mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that um, it's really important to communicate that um, I think that there is a... Um, a, a sort of a behavioral psychological um, filter that people um, take, you know, th that things go, that the language goes through when we say exercise, when we say physical activity. And for me, it goes back to junior high gym, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I don't know, there was, there was a game that we played called um, crab ball. Does anybody remember <laughs> crab ball um, with these big giant cage balls? Um, mm -hmm. And, um, Anyway, um, so, so, you know, there, there were things that were, you know, uncomfortable because we were all, you know, pubescent and changing yes. our clothes in front of each other and all of that. And, um, and, uh, and I, I think, um, uh, I think that there is a, just a, a, a need to acknowledge the fact that we come in all shapes and sizes yeah. and that exercise is good for us, regardless of our size. And that, you know, the late great Steve, Steve Blair, um, uh, you know, uh, did seminal research to show us, um, uh, to prove the fit that hypothesis, which is that, um, uh, it doesn't matter what your BMI is. It doesn't matter how large you are. Um, physical activity has physiologic benefits regardless of what your weight is. And so, um, I think it's really important for your listeners to understand that a little bit of exercise helps. We know that we get greater benefits going from nothing to 10 minutes a day than we do going from 30 to 40 minutes a day, for example. So it really doesn't have to be a marathon. It can be a 10 minute walk a day and that can be your starting place. And once you're comfortable and that's gotten to be easy, then you build on that. So, um, you know, we need to really pay attention um, to, you know, behavioral shaping and um, how we help people to do just the tiniest bits of exercise in order to get them started. Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I... I think that is uh, super interesting and super important. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I may have this incorrect, um, but I believe that also if you haven't been doing any exercise and you start doing some exercise, that you actually get even more benefits than someone who's exercising all of the time and just maybe does a little bit more. So it's it, if you haven't been doing anything, right. just starting something, you actually, you're going to benefit the, the most, right? Yes. Yes. There are a whole host of uh, physiologic benefits that occur immediately. Um, it's not something that you have to do for 12 weeks in order to experience the improvements in um, uh, blood chemistry. Um, so our blood glucose is altered the way that the body deals with um, sequestering glucose within the cells, 
um, is altered as a result of an acute bout of exercise, a single bout of exercise, um, the way that our um, uh, uh, inflammation system, if you want to call it that, um, works is altered by an acute bout of exercise. In, uh, the immune system is altered by an acute bout of exercise. Myokines, which are the um, chemicals that are released from the muscles, are altered by an acute bout of exercise. Um, and you know, I think I think there's another aspect here, and I think that this is sort of our our best friend in this situation, Mary Beth, and getting those who are reluctant off the couch, and that is they actually do feel better. So, I mean, just think for just a second, how do you feel? Like nobody is built to sit on the couch all day. Nobody is built to sit in a chair all day. Nobody is, nobody is. And it turns out we are meant to move till the moment we take our last breath. We need to move people in the ICU. We need to move people who are palliative, who are in hospice. Those people need to be moved, literally moved, right? We are meant to be in motion our entire lives. So if, you know, do you feel better when you're just sitting all the time, you know? And so, so the test that I would give to your reluctant listeners is get up for five minutes and move and, you know, dance, do something joyful, something that, you know, makes you feel good, whatever it might be. Um, you know, nothing that feels like a slog. Um, and, you know, you finish the five minutes and then just test, you know, do you feel any better? Do you feel any different than you did when you were sitting on the couch? My guess is people are going to feel better. And if you feel better, then pay attention to that and let that help you to overcome the resistance. That's right. Really acknowledging, you know, the small wins and, and where your body is at. I, that has helped me a lot. Uh, I tend to go for a hike with the dog outside. Um, I live in Vermont, which has got a lot of hills, <laughs> a lot of hills to climb. Um, so we get out into the woods and, you know, even on those days where it's very cold, like it is today, and it's hard to motivate, uh, once I'm out there and then I come back, I, I always feel better. Um, so always, always. um, I, I, before we move on from some of these statistics, I did want to note one more thing. In a study that uh, that you had provided to me, I noted this, that um, compared with women who were inactive before, both before and after diagnosis, women who increased physical activity after diagnosis had a 45% lower risk of death. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so that's a, um, you know, pretty in incredible. And then it continued that. And women who decreased physical activity after diagnosis mm -hmm. had a fourfold greater risk of death. So it's that that turning, you've had a diagnosis. Once you've had a diagnosis, it, it, don't think that, oh, it doesn't matter now. Mm -hmm. You know, it matters more than ever now, right? Right. So two things. Yeah. One, um, uh, it's important to put this into context. Okay. Um, understand that it's observational. And so there is the possibility that people self-select. Okay. So there is the possibility that the people who were able to exercise did so and that they did better. And the people who were unable to exercise did not do so. And they actually, that was, it, it actually is sort of a chicken and egg situation. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, if you're not able to exercise because you're not doing well, then those are the people, that's the signal that tells us that you are more likely to have recurrence. That is the downfall of an observational study. 
that's yeah. something we can't get past with an observational study. But mm -hmm. very important observation that you've pointed out is that it does matter after diagnosis. So um, prior to the study that you're talking about, what we had was data that told us that women who were more physically active were less, less likely to die of their breast cancer, but all of the observational physical activity happened before the diagnosis. And so we thought it was just the pre-diagnosis exercise that made a difference. And what this study showed us was, nope, it turns out what you do after your diagnosis matters a lot. It matters a lot. So if you are able to exercise, it's actually kind of, it's sort of an interesting litmus test, isn't it? Like if you're able to exercise, then you really need to be exercising because <laughs> we know it's really valuable to you. If you can't exercise, then you can't exercise. And, you know, I just want to acknowledge that there are going to be people listening who can't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let's okay. define exercise too, because right. I, I believe that um, it, it's not about going to a CrossFit class. It is where, not. You know, exercising for some cancer patients could be getting the mail you know, walk, right? It yeah. could be walking around the block. It could be, you know, small things, but that gets your body moving. Yes, absolutely. So if I can give a plug to my book, there is a connection mm -hmm. from my book. Let's um, talk about that. My book Please. is called Moving Through Cancer. And there's a website associated with the book. And there are some videos on the website that would be helpful to people who are at, they're intended for people at lower function. Uh, but in addition, if you buy the book, and go on the website, you can get in touch with me and you can get um, a free subscription to an online service called My Victory for a full year. And um, there's thousands of videos that are intended for people at all levels of function. Um, there's chair exercise, there's you know everything from very low uh, function level movement all the way up to hip training. Um, and you know, very very intensive uh, uh, classes on my victory. It's intended. It's 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 pitched as um, Peloton for cancer survivors. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I think that is so important. And it's very much a part. It's at the core of the my mission, my personal goal, which is to bring actionable anti-cancer strategies to. Um, people who have cancer or who are trying to prevent cancer, um, because I, I I feel like sometimes um, things are a little vague. We read some great articles and some new piece of evidence comes out, but you end up wondering, what do I do with this? Right. And the reason I reached out to you specifically was because I loved your book. I loved that the whole book, um, just for the listeners so they understand, um, is prescriptive. Like you provide people with a path forward. If you've had surgery, here's what you want to know and what you want to think about. If you're in chemotherapy, this is what you want to be thinking about. So there's something for everyone um, at every stage in the cancer process. And then you also provide a context for this because you've experienced cancer in your own family. Um, we've talked about how your wife, Sarah, was diagnosed and, and that journey. Can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to write this book and, um, and what you want people to yeah. know about it? So, um, so my, my wife's diagnosis changed my career. It really, my career took a left turn as a result of it. Um, so it was um, uh, 2016 um, and uh, Sarah was misdiagnosed for a full year. 
Um, and when she was finally diagnosed, she has stage three squamous cell carcinoma in her right nostril, which had uh, migrated across the septum and was, uh, was considered you know, invasive and advanced. And um, she had uh, what is euphemistically called a complete rhinectomy. Um, the joke, got your nose, is not funny in our house. Um, and uh, she had her entire nose removed. There is, turns out, in India, they used to cut off people's noses um, for theft. And so back in India, they developed thousands of years ago, um, they developed a, um, a surgery called a forehead flap, where they would take a piece of the forehead and flip it down to form a covering for what used to be the nose. And that is in fact what they did for Sarah. They created a new nose out of parts of cartilage of her ear and you know, skin from, uh, from her uh, forearm. And um, so you know, this intensive, intensive surgery. Um, and, uh, and then they did combined chemo and radiation after that. And um, when she first was diagnosed, you know, my mom had a squamous cell carcinoma um, uh, on her nose, you know, and I, and it was just a little, you know, a little surgery, a little thing, you know, um, and, and so when she said it was squamous cell carcinoma, I was like, oh, it's fine, it's yeah. fine, it'll be fine, you know, and we were in total denial until we walked into a room with, um, you know, medical oncologists, surgical oncologists, radiation, you know, multidisciplinary team came together to talk to her about what was coming and they were talking so seriously and we were like, this seems like overkill. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and, you know, it was our first clue, you know, um, and the penny finally dropped when um, Sarah was in the room with the surgeons and they kept talking about that they were going to take the tip of her nose. And this is this story. I know there will be many people listening who will really relate to this story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, surgeons are very euphemistic, right? So they, like they say, uh -huh things in the most positive possible way, you know, yeah. and, um, and so they kept saying tip of your nose and, you know, I don't know about you, but the tip of my nose right, just seems you know, like a teeny piece yeah. right here. Like, oh, you're just going to take the tip of my nose. It's all going to be fine. I'm just going to have the tip of my nose gone. Right. Yeah. And, and, and they kept, but they kept speaking to her in this very serious tone. And she was like, this doesn't track. And she said, finally, would you please draw on my face what you're going to remove ah. through the entire nose they, uh, did, they like put a marker around her entire nose and she, she just went you know completely yeah you know, nonetheless and blah you know and um came out to the car and you know took a picture of it and sent it to me and was like they're taking my nose my whole nose and we just went into panic mode we just went into overwhelm note mode and um and there were four weeks between when uh, we had the, the the seminal diagnosis, and you know we knew what was going on. And when um, she had her surgery, and um, that those were four key weeks when we could have built up her physiologic uh, capacity um, for her to get through the rest of the treatment. And we her completely strength. missed it. Her strength, right? Her strength. Yeah, her ability to withstand the rest of the treatment. And she's a tiny thing, you know, five to you know, hundred and twenty pounds, um, and. Um, she, uh, we missed that opportunity because we were so overwhelmed. And it was only when she was actually in um, the process of doing combined chemo and radiation that, you know, she started saying, God, I'm just so tired. I'm just so tired. 
and something kind of clicked for me, you know, and I went, oh, wait, I know something here. I can be helpful, you know, and, um, and I made her get on the treadmill for a half hour every day. And um, she really did not like it very much. Um, but I'm very proud to say that Sarah got through combined chemo radiation without a single delayed or reduced dose, which is very unusual. It's yeah. very common in head and neck cancer to have reduced dose and delayed doses, which are associated with worse recurrence and, or, and worse survival. Um, I was going to say, it's super yeah. important to super stay important. on regimen for exactly. all cancers. That's right. Um, right. So, so that you get the benefit of the medicine. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so, you know, what I recognized in a brand new way because of the experience that we went through was that, you know, I had been doing, you know, efficacy trials to show that exercise was useful in the setting of people living with and beyond cancer for over a decade at that point, 15 years. And what I realized is, this is all spinning in the wind right now because cancer patients are not getting the message. And so I actually, her diagnosis was in 2016. I got my book deal in 2018. Wow. So I was like, I am, I am translating. I am translating. Now so, that doesn't mean we don't need more science. We right. certainly need more science, but we know enough that people should be at choice about whether they actually choose to exercise in order to improve their health as they're going through their cancer journey. So did anyone uh, ever say during your the, the process of being diagnosed and Sarah hearing from all these doctors, did any of the doctors say, you need to start exercising, you need to build up Not your strength, this is going to be one. taxing on your Not body? One. Not one. Not one. I, Ivy League institution. Yeah. And, and do you think that that's abnormal? Was it just, you know, unfortunately, no, Sarah, do you think that's what happens today? I think that's standard of care and actually a really beautiful survey that was done by Jennifer Ligabel in collaboration with the American Society of Clinical Oncology tells us that when you ask patients, um, did your doctor tell you anything about exercise? 15% uh, of patients report that they recall that their oncologist said something about exercise. So only 15%. 15% are hearing about it. 15%. That is so low. That is so low. Despite the fact that oncologists, Jennifer Leavell again, with ASCO, um, uh, did a survey of oncologists to say, do you think this is important? And close to 80% of them said yes. So they think it's important. They're just not getting to it. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because I've heard, um, I've spoken with some oncologists about this and um I hear from doctors kind of almost a, a depression that they don't believe that patients are going to listen. They feel like, I, I, you know, there's really nothing I can do. I know if I give them a drug, it's going to get in their system, but I talk to them and exercise and, and I feel like that's falling on deaf ears. Okay. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I got to step in here. I got to uh -huh. because listen. If you, if you were to do with exercise, what if you were to do, I'm sorry, with chemotherapy, what we do with exercise, you would say the same result. What we do with exercise is we give people a brochure. So let's just do a thought exercise for a second, Mary Beth. Okay. Yes. This really, this really oh, uh, I, I love, get riled up. Yeah, I'm riled <laughs> up. So <clears throat> um, let's just do this thought exercise. Okay. Yes. We're going to give people a brochure for chemotherapy. We're going to say, this brochure will explain to you what chemotherapy is. We think it's useful for you and that it might reduce your recurrence of your disease. 
Um, they have classes at the YMCA. They're offered at seven o'clock at night, um, three times a year. I hope that works for you and that you have transportation to get there. Um, and, you know, good luck to you and goodbye, you know, or um, better yet, um, we think this will help you. The brochure will tell you what to do. Now, hopefully, I'm not suggesting we do that with chemotherapy. Yeah, I did I that understand. in order for you to understand that there is an enormous, enormous infrastructure around chemotherapy. Yes. So there's this enormous infrastructure that tells us there's a place you go in the hospital for chemotherapy. There's an infusion suite. There's a thing called a chemo chair. Yes. Like, did you know that that's a new invention? It's a yeah. relatively new invention in the world, right? So there's a chemo chair. There are chemo nurses. There are people specifically trained to do this. Medical assistants have been trained in order to take the vitals and to flow people through the process. And there's a whole flow of what happens. Everybody who's been through this knows that there's this sort of, you go, you sit, you get yeah. your vitals, you sit down, you see the doctor, you go back, you yeah. get in the chair, you're in the chair for however many hours, you know, and there's right. nurses that come by and they hang various bags, you know. And, and they check, check on, on you. Right, exactly, they... exactly. Well, if you have that kind of infrastructure for exercise, do you think people would do it? I do. <laughs> I do think they there would. There you do go. It. So don't tell me they just won't do it. They won't do it because there's no infrastructure around it. I totally agree. I also believe that there are, and I believe this is supported by research as well, which is there are points in our lives where, um, you know, they're pivotal for change, behavioral change, right? Um, big moments in your life, like getting married, starting a new job, having a child, um, but also getting diagnosed with cancer. cancer. Yeah. Getting diagnosed with cancer is a pretty big motivator to get off the couch and to do something, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I feel like uh, sometimes people are giving up on cancer patients or doctors may have given right. up on cancer patients without giving them the, tr you know, a chance, uh, right. to really understand the impact of exercise mm -hmm. and to help them get started and, and do a new behavior, uh, support that new behavior. Um, which is one of the reasons, the, one of the reasons I wanted to start, off with you talking about statistics, because I also often hear, you know, people say, oh, yes, exercise. I, I, I know, you know, there's a lot that's written. It's good for you. But but I think it's different when you tell someone you got a 30 to 50 percent likelihood of preventing recurrence yeah. like that's motivating. And and I don't think that type of communication is getting through to patients. I don't think that, I don't think it is either, but I also think that we need to, I want to, I want to be very careful about, um, blaming the oncologist. Yes. I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I just spent three years, um, I had the honor of being on the small group that helped to revise the standards from the from the national accreditation program for breast centers. And it was a re-envisioning of those standards towards the goal of, of um, improving the patient journey. Mm -hmm. and, um, and one of the things that came really clear to me and that I want to acknowledge and that I want to make sure that folks listening know that I understand is that um, you know oncologists, there are too few oncologists for the number of patients, and that's just going to get worse as the nation gets older. 
Um, and so they're pressed for time. And so the idea that they now also need to be physical activity counselors is untenable. Yes. And so um, they, they're, they're going to deal with financial stress. They're going to deal with sexual health. They're going to deal with sleep. They're going to deal with cold caps. They're going to deal with exercise, nutrition, um, anxiety and depression, um, you know, transportation issues, social determinants of health. I mean, there's a, there's a list of 15 things that uh, NAPBC came up with and was like, well, and, and, and why would we talk about exercise before we talk about everything else? And I have two answers to that. Um, one answer is we need to build in the infrastructure so that there is actually a human being in place to be able to navigate people, a rehabilitation navigator, to be able to navigate people to the appropriate programming, whether it's a physical therapist or an exercise program or an exercise guide of some kind. Um, uh, the other thing is that I think that um, the, the um, reason why we should be doing exercise on top of all those other issues is the evidence. Yeah. Like right. if, if I, I was just on a, a major call, national call with uh, oncologists and, and you know, folks interested in survivorship, and I said, our survivorship guidelines for the nation should be evidence-based. Everything that we have in there should be evidence-based. And somebody said, well, then that's rehab and exercise, isn't it? Yep. That's exactly right. So, <laughs> yep. um, so you know, I I think that you know um, when you give me the list of fifteen things that the um, oncologist should be talking about, yeah. and the question is why is exercise on top of it? The answer is because the evidence base is there. Yeah, it's there, and I you know want to just reiterate. I am so grateful for the care that I've been given. There is no doubt. I happen to have a, a doctor who is excited about exercise as a therapy as well. So that I was very lucky that way. Um, but I do know, you know, oncologists um, are doing an incredible job and there's a lot uh, on their plate. Um, and I 100% agree with you. The infrastructure needs to be built to support this, just like the infrastructure is built to support other drugs, whether it's CAR-T or chemo or you know all of these different anti-cancer strategies. No one would expect it to move forward without infrastructure um, yeah. and expertise. And this is should be no different. This should be no different. It That's is, right. yeah. That's right. So um, um, you were talking about your book <clears throat> and you were talking about the ability to um, get patients to um, to be able to see these videos that you're kind of creating an environment, um, a resource for them, if you will, where they can go and and learn and take more into their own hands. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to come back to that briefly so that we could reiterate where do they go if they want to do okay. this, if you would tell them exactly um, uh, what that is and the support that they could get um, through. Sure. So, so the, the agreement that I have with my victory is that if somebody buys my book, um, there is uh, an email address to send me an email to say, here's the code that says I bought the book. Um, and you, know, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on, you know, in in person at Barnes and Noble. It's, you know, it's it's where where books are sold. You know, yeah. Um, and um, you send me that code, and I then send the um, the the passcode that allows you access to my victory. Um, so um, so the steps are buy the book, um, go to the website, um, and it will give you the email address to be able to contact me. 
Um, the website is is plastered all over the book, but it's um, www.movingthroughcancer.com. Um, okay. Um, so um, so that's the website. Um, okay. And even if it's an audio book, if you get the audio yeah, book, does that still? We did. Do. We did. Okay. Great. I got the audio book. <laughs> um, okay, good. And um, and Sarah is doing well now. Right. Sarah's great. She's seven years out. Um, and you know, she's disfigured. Um, she, you know, it turns out that when you irradiate tissue, um, it shrinks. Um, and so she has a little nubbin of a nose. Um, but, um, besides that, she is extremely healthy. Um, you know, she has, she has, you know, long-term effects. She gets cataracts more often than, than anybody else I have ever heard of, um, because of the radiation effect on her eyes. Um, and her teeth were affected. So these are very, very common things coming out of head and neck cancer, but um, she's thriving. She's an architect and um, thriving in her career um, and uh, very healthy, exercises a lot. Um, her particular form of exercise that she got into because of her cancer was boxing because oh. she was so angry. <laughs> I get that. Yeah, so she that. really enjoys boxing a lot. So. I actually... Um... I've been a student of uh, Taekwondo for about oh. 10 years oh. um, and yeah. my, I've done it with my younger son and uh, yeah. it feels really good sometimes to yeah. throw punches and kicks. Yes. <laughs> um, that definitely helps with uh, getting rid of some of that energy and directing, directing it in a better, in a positive way. Right for right. your body. And that actually brings up something else that I was hoping we could talk about, which is, types of exercise. Um, so we know from our earlier when we were talking that all exercise is good. Moving mm -hmm. is good. I'm sure that's why you named your book Moving Through Cancer. Mm -hmm. um, but there has been specific research done um, on different types of exercise, meaning aerobic exercise um, and certain like minutes per week versus anaerobic exercise or lifting weights. Um, and now there's a lot of uh, chatter around vigorous exercise and then interval training like HIIT exercise. So can you touch on those things and tell us like, is there one gold standard? Should we be doing one versus another? Does it matter if we're pre or post chemotherapy? Is one better at one point in time? How do we look at the types of exercise and decide what to choose? Right. So um, outstanding question. Um, and I think it's really complex. And I think that, you know, it's easy to get lost in all of this. So um, so I'm going to go across the cancer control continuum and talk about this a little bit. And then I'll, I'll finish off talking about the vigorous exercise and HIIT training. Um, but I want to talk about aerobic and resistance first. So um, when we talk about exercise and primary prevention of cancer, we are entirely focused on aerobic exercise. And so if your listeners are pre-cancer, they have not had a diagnosis of cancer, and they're interested in the cancer prevention benefits of exercise, we are focused entirely on aerobic exercise. But that, what, that, what I'm trying to convey is that that's what the research shows. That's not to say that there are not benefits of resistance training, but all of the studies that have been done um, that have focused on uh, uh, anything having to do with physical activity or aerobic or, or exercise of any kind um, and cancer prevention in the animal model, as well as in humans, in observational studies, has focused on aerobic exercise. Um, one of the reasons for this is that it is very difficult to 
um, monitor resistance training exercise in the same way that we monitor aerobic exercise. It's very easy for people to recall, I went for a run three times last week. It's much more difficult to, for us to record the volume of exercise, it's much more complicated to say, eight, rep, you know, eight exercises, three sets per exercise, eight repetitions you know, at 50% one rep max. You know, I see. Very like it's difficult for people to know. They're like, yeah, I went to the gym. You know, I lifted weights. Like, and somebody could be going to the gym and lifting pretty pink dumbbells, and somebody could be going to the gym and doing very heavy barbell work. You know, and so um, it's 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 unlike you know if you say you go for a walk versus going for a jog, we have a fairly good idea of your intensity, right? So, um, so there's some complexities. It's also exceedingly difficult to get rats to do weight training. Yes. I can imagine. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some models. There are some models out there, but they're rare. Um, so most of the prevention research is really focused on aerobic exercise. So if your listeners are interested in primary prevention, it's aerobic exercise that I recommend. Okay, okay. and that's what the that's what American Cancer Society, American College of Sports Medicine, you know, all of the major organizations that that's what they recommend is aerobic exercise, um, anywhere from 150 to 300 minutes a week. If you don't have 300 minutes a week, do a higher intensity um, and do 150 minutes a week. Um, so that's the prevention. Now, once you've been diagnosed with cancer, um, you know, this, it really depends on where you are in your process. So let's walk through the process and what you really need to be focused on as you're going through the process. And then we'll talk about recurrence and Excellent. back to the recurrence. Okay. Great. So um, the sort of standard, it doesn't always happen this way. Certainly there's neoadjuvant treatments. There's many different pathways that people have, but the most common pathway through cancer is surgery, chemo, radiation. Okay. So let's, let's do it in that order. Just, just for, um, the sake of, of, you know, an, an argument. Um, yeah. so, um, so for surgery prior to surgery, you need to be hitting the gym. You need to be working as hard as you possibly can. Prehabilitation has been shown to be extremely effective, particularly in the setting of colon cancer. There's emerging evidence in lung cancer. Um, not as much evidence, not as strong an evidence as in breast because people who are approaching breast cancer treatment are typically pretty well to begin with. Um, but you know, people who are approaching colon and, and lung cancer surgery are typically pretty debilitated. And those folks are, are, are more debilitated than the average breast cancer patient. So doing a combination of aerobic and resistance training is highly recommended and shown to be efficacious. And so it is the combination of the two and working as hard as you can without getting hurt um, for the three to four weeks. This is the window that we missed for Sarah. Um, okay. that I, I regret, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, what I lay out in my book is actually a three-week plan that can be expanded to, you know, six weeks if you've got six weeks before surgery. Um, so that's that's an that's the most intensive moment of training in the process of going through cancer treatment. So trying to build up before you have this um, surgery and your body is is thrown into um, thrown into uh, a state where it it it's going to have to handle. Um, right. And, and you're going to rest a lot. You're going to need to rest a lot. And so we lose physiologic capacity in the period of rest that must follow major surgeries. And so um, you're basically building up what you can so that the deficit that you have doesn't go as deep. Right. Yeah. And, um, and then there's the period of recovery. And a lot of people misunderstand 
that after surgery, they need to be completely and totally sedentary for a very long time. And that is not accurate. They should be moving. Um, Sarah was, you know, doing laps in the, in the hospital the day after her surgery um, with her IV pole, you know, just lapping around, you know, for, for a good amount of time. And we were really shocked that she was alone. You know, there wasn't yeah. anybody else getting out of bed. So um, there are, um, you know, there are many, many studies that show um, what's called ERAS, um, enhanced recovery after surgery. Um, we know that uh, nutrition and exercise are in, in crucial uh, elements of ERASH protocols. Um, and so we need to be getting people out of, out of bed sooner. Um, and we get out of the hospital quicker if we get out of uh, bed sooner as well, which, you know, getting out of the hospital is a good thing. Hospitals are a place where C. diff happens. Hospitals are a place where infections happen, bad infections happen. And I think people feel better mentally when they get into their own home. So yes. yeah, being yes. able to move quickly from yes. surgery to your home environment where, um, it, it, it is a positive thing and, and moving will help you even walking around on the, on the floor of the yes. hospital. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, after the surgeon says that you are able to return to normal daily activities, you should be back to, uh, doing, uh, aerobic plus resistance training exercise. And it's the plus resistance training exercise because you have lost muscle mass, you have lost strength. Okay. So there needs to be a combination of aerobic exercise and resistance, uh, training in the recovery from surgery. Um, when you're going through chemotherapy, um, the evidence base tells us that there is value to aerobic exercise and to resistance training. And there is actually enough evidence, there's so much evidence that you can sort of um, dial into, well, what is the outcome you're caring about the most? So if you care most about um, sleep, then it turns out that it's really aerobic exercise that is more important. If you care about lymphedema, then it's resistance training that you might care about more. If you care more about anxiety and depression, then it's either one. You know, it turns out that they both work really well. So, um, so ideally, what you're doing during chemotherapy and immunotherapy, um, uh, you know, I, I will say um, the uh, evidence base about exercise and immunotherapy is, um, uh, I could say scant is, is too strong a word. Um, it's yeah. very, like, it's not there. It's just not there. So I don't talk about it in my book because the book is evidence-based and there wasn't any evidence to talk about. So I couldn't talk about it. So uh, well, it's very new. It's newer, right? Newer. It's just, newer. we just haven't had the time um, to, to do exactly. collect exactly. that information. Studies, studies are coming. They're coming. But yeah. during chemotherapy, the best case scenario is that you're doing three times a week, 30 minutes of aerobic exercise, which could, could just be, you know, shuffling around the house, um, you know, going to the, going to the um, corner store and back or into the mailbox and back depending on your setting, um, and twice weekly aerobic exercise. Those can be put into one session. So you could be doing 30 minutes and then 10 minutes of aerobic of, of resistance training, and then you're doing three sessions a week. Um, but there needs to be acknowledgement to the fact that there are going to be times when you have bad days, you know, and what we call, you know, bad days. And bad days are days where it's like, nope, getting off the couch is really not an option today. Um, so um, if you have a question, if there's a point at which you say, mm, I don't know, I don't know if I can do it today, then you should move for 10 minutes. Um, try to move for 10 minutes. If you feel better or feel the same, keep going. Um, if you do not, then sit down, you know, and you've tried and you, you, you're having a bad day, right? So, you know, bad days that you know are bad days, fine, that's fine. Bad days, you're like, not sure, you give it a try. 
um, and uh, otherwise you should be moving. And it should be a day by day by day thing because um, uh, as we go through chemotherapy cycles and chemotherapy cycles can be three weeks long, they can be one week long. So it just really, it depends on, you know, kind of the, 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 the way that your particular chemotherapy cycles progress and the way that your symptoms progress as you go through your chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. Once we're done with chemotherapy, the, um, the option is there for some cancers to go on to radiation therapy. Um, the um, primary um, uh, symptom that people report as they're going through uh, radiation therapy is fatigue. Um, and uh, the number one treatment for cancer-related fatigue is aerobic exercise. Um, so, but resistance training exercise also helps. So, um, so you can do one or the other, ideally do both. Um, again, three times a week, 30 minutes, plus twice weekly resistance exercise um, as we get through it. When we're done with treatment, when we're done with all treatments, all various therapies, um, we want to uh, migrate our way back to 150 to 300 minutes a week of aerobic exercise and twice weekly strength training um, in order to reduce risk of recurrence and um, cancer mortality. You said something um, that that uh, I wanted to come back to, which was uh, about building up the loss of muscle mass. Right. Um, because my understanding is there's some pretty strong statistics that suggest that losing muscle mass is uh, detrimental to overall survival. It is indeed. Yeah. So we worry a lot about what's called cancer cachexia, um, which is to say a loss of muscle mass, a loss of muscle strength and function, um, loss of grip strength. Um, and those things are absolutely associated with worse uh, cancer, you know, more likely cancer mortality, worse recurrence rates. Um, and, uh, and so uh, muscle turns out to be hugely important. Um, also important is what's happening with your fat mass. Fat mass can creep up. Um, as we're more sedentary, as we need to be more sedentary, as we go through our, our the more um, intensive cancer treatments, the surgeries in particular, mm -hmm. um, and so or you know or high dose chemotherapy, which is true for you know a subset of patients as well. Um, those going through bone marrow transplants are you know losing a, a tremendous amount of muscle as they go through, and you know trying to keep them moving as much as possible as they go through that is is hugely important. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, cancer cachexia is a, that's a, you should have somebody on who's, who's an expert on cachexia because it's a huge new topic. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I will do that. Um, so building back the muscle. So we start off and we try to build up as much strength as we can, both muscle okay. mass and endurance through aerobic and anaerobic exercise before anything happens. Even if it's three weeks, you're going yep. to get benefit even for three weeks of doing something. So yes. then that tries to mitigate the, the slope afterwards once we have had surgery and we do lose muscle mass and we start to become weaker. And then as soon as we can, and that means is that even while you're still in the hospital, you start moving, you start getting your body, just getting used to being in motion. And then you start to add back it sounds like um right, right. An and, add -on and, and the the tripwire to tell you that you've gone too far is that your your um um your wounds begin to bleed more okay um, that if if you develop infection if you um uh you know have have blood seeping um new blood seeping from wounds um then you're pushing too hard okay. so 
what we're talking about in the early recovery from surgery is, you know, is, is ambling with your, you know, IV pole. With your um, IV pole. So we're, we're talking about very, very low intensity movement. Uh-huh. And then just building. And building, building from there. Yeah. And building from there. Um, so uh, this is all very interesting. And you touched on a few things um, that suggest do we know why it works? Like oftentimes scientists will talk about the mechanisms of action. Um, you know, it's, I can see that we have the evidence base that something's happening. Do we know what's happening? Yeah. So um, again, going back to those, that sort of triangle of the different, you know, ways, you know, we do biomarker studies in humans so we can look at mechanisms of actions in, in humans but we, we can't follow people all the way to cancer. And so, um, so there's a flaw in those studies. Um, so we rely a lot on animal model studies um, for our um, uh, mechanisms of action. And again, those do not perfectly recapitulate the human. So we're, we're dealing with less than perfect data um, at all times with this. And you know, that's, that's true of the drug studies as well. I mean, that's, yeah. that, this, is not, this is not unique to exercise, you know, mm -hmm. it's true of nutrition studies and you know, so you know, uh, caveat, caveat, right? So, uh -huh. um, uh, so there are a number of things that we know happen um, when we think about the physiologic changes in the body that occur as a result of doing regular exercise most people would immediately see, oh yeah, you're going to have a benefit for your heart. Your heart is going to change because you're pumping blood uh, in a different way. You're going to, you know, people would sort of very easily understand that you would have a change in maybe blood vessels in the body um, and the number of blood vessels, the density of blood vessels. Um, it would be easy for people to see that the lungs would be, um, you know, improved in some way. Lung function would be improved with regular exercise. It would also be probably pretty like intuitive to people to understand that your muscles and bones are altered as a result. Might not be particularly surprising to your audience to know that your gut is altered as a result of uh, of exercise. The gut it, microbiome. The gut microbiome, absolutely. Um, uh, but also just gut function is uh, is altered as a result of being regularly active. But there are um, uh, a couple of other tissues that are hugely important for the development of cancer and the progression of cancer that are also altered. Um, there are um, the way that cancer develops is through a series of um, tripwires that get missed in the body that, um, you know, there's all kinds of, of uh, tumor suppressor genes that turn on that tell us stop, you know, when when there is uh, a change in the metabolic milieu in the area where a tumor is developing, then a tumor suppressor gene can be turned on in order to stop um, a, a tumor from further growth and uh, exercise turns on tumor suppressor genes, a number of different tumor suppressor genes. Um, we also so, know- Can I ask one question? So yeah. if what I hear you say is that if I, let's say, haven't been treating my body very well and I have a tumor suppressor gene that got turned off. On. Right. The exercise can turn it back on. Correct. So uh, that's pretty interesting that it can yeah. actually change your genes. Yeah. To make it an environment. That... Genes. Wow. Right. 
Right. So there's an alteration in tumor suppressor genes with exercise. Um, there's also um, in our cells and every cell we have what's called the powerhouse, the mitochondria, um, which are the things that express all of the energy and help us with making the work of the body happen. Um, the way that the mitochondria metabolize alters um, in tumors as a result of, uh, of being more physically active as well. So the ability of the tumor to continue to um, metabolize and do what it needs to do in order to grow and grow and grow and grow. Because it's, you know, tumor is uncontrolled growth. That's what a tumor is. Um, and it's less able to do that um, as a result of being more physically active. Wow. So That's interesting. Um, there's also um, enormous effects in adipose tissue. So our fat tissue. Um, one of the things that has been shown, there's a, a, a small army of researchers that have looked at um, what happens in the fat tissue of individuals who are sedentary and overweight, um, as opposed to people who are regularly physically active and or lean. Um, and, and those two things tend to go together, but are not necessarily, there's kind of a Venn diagram. Um, it's not perfect, but um, the adipose tissue in somebody who is sedentary um, has more cytokines, more inflammatory constituents, okay? And those inflammatory constituents alter the adipose tissue in a way that it um, starts to degrade the actual adipose cells so that they become crown-like structures, which are very inflammatory, which wreak havoc uh, in terms of inflammation and altering suppressor genes and tumor promoter genes and alter the metabolic milieu in which a tumor would grow. And we know that adipose tissue just looks sick um, in somebody who is sedentary and adipose tissue, the same adipose tissue. I'm not asking you to lose the adipose tissue. I'm asking you to make your adipose tissue healthier, right? Who so, knew there was healthy fat? That's so fascinating. Fat. I've never heard that before. That's yeah. interesting. Right. So um, the other thing is that, um, so basically what I'm getting at is that there are changes in the expression of genes. There's changes in metabolism in tumors. There's changes in adipose tissue. And extremely importantly, extremely importantly, there are changes in the way that our immune system works. In particular, we've known for decades that exercise has a positive effect on the number and function of natural killer cells, which are uh, extremely important for um, killing uh, tumor cells and you know, fighting off the development of tumors. So, um, so our immune system is altered by exercise. We've known that for a long time, frankly. We're just getting more information. We have a J-shaped curve with um, an upside down J-shaped curve with exercise and immune function that's been described for a very long time. People who are sedentary, their immune systems are weaker. We know this from COVID. Do you yeah. know that? We know this from COVID. People who are regularly physically active are way less likely to develop long COVID, develop severe COVID, be hospitalized from COVID. That's been published in major journals. Right. Yeah. So there's your proof. Right. So we know that exercise has a powerful effect on background immunity. All right. But in addition, there's this other system, if you will. It's not really a system, but for sake of argument, it is. And that is there are inflammatory system, like mm -hmm. the level of background inflammation in the body is quite different in someone who is sedentary than somebody who is regularly physically active. And meaning higher in those who are higher in those who sedentary. are sedentary. And if it's higher, then that means that there are more cytokines that are coming in and there's more 
uh, free radicals um, that are coming in to the metabolic milieu around tissue that is thinking about becoming a tumor or is in the process of becoming a tumor or a tumor in the process of growing and mm -hmm. moving and, and invading to other territory. And those free radicals are saying, great, let's have a party. Let's make that happen. You know, All right, we got to shut down that party. We got to shut down that party and mm -hmm. exercise will shut down that party. Wow. Interesting. There's a, a new, um, we were, I kind of cut you off and veered the conversation, but you were getting to a, the topic of high intensity uh, training oh, and yes. vigorous exercise. So we had gotten through, okay, this is the process to go through, you know, in your cancer journey. But um, what about this new, new conversation that's happening about vigorous exercise and the research in, in that area? I think you've had some experience with that and one of the researchers. Yes. So um, uh, Dr. Stamanakis um, published a paper in JAMA Oncology this past summer uh, that got a lot of splashy press. Um, and he was talking about an observational study. So again, caveat, caveat, lots of you know caveats about all of the various types of research. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Dr. Dr. Stamanakis was working with the um, UK Biobank, which is uh, a remarkable observational study that has followed tens of thousands of people over the course of a very long period of time. And they had them wear uh, a physical activity monitor on the wrist, um, not unlike an Apple watch. Um, and they followed them over time to see who would develop cancer and who would not develop cancer. And um, what they were able to do in part because of this precision of the uh, data and because of the size of the cohort um, they were actually able to look specifically not just at whether people were active versus not active, but specifically at intensity of activity because of the fact that they had objective monitoring. And people are, people are not awesome at saying, it's like, oh, yeah, I went for a job, you know, and yeah. really, did you, you know? <laughs> so, you know, people the wearables is a big advancement in research for the, I can imagine it that is, the is. data is going to be much better, will make the research yeah. much better. Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, and what somebody calls a jog is going to be, you know, different than what somebody else calls a jog. Um, so, uh, so, so he had this, you know, really pristine data to be able to analyze. And what he was able to isolate was that, in fact, um, uh, there was tremendous isolated and interesting usefulness of what he called VILPA, uh, vigorous uh, leisure time physical activity. Um, and uh, what he was interested in was that he was able to show that bouts of two minutes, two to three minutes of vigorous intensity physical activity had a uh, meaningful substantive effect of reducing risk of incidence of, of all cancers. Um, he didn't look at specific cancers. Um, and so, um, you know, this is, this is very interesting. And, you know, the challenge, and we've talked about the behavioral challenge of being physically active, the challenge is that people say, you want me to do 150 to 300 minutes a week of exercise, exactly when, when I'm dealing with kids and mm -hmm. job and cancer and, you know, everything else I'm doing. And, um, and so what um, uh, this paper basically says is that, you know, it is possible that we could get benefit from doing something very vigorous. You know, let's just drop into some burpees right now. Let's, you know, get into the jumping jacks. Let's High, high knee, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, marches, you know, uh, whatever we might do that would be high intensity and do it for two minutes, do it for a minute, 
um, and you know maybe doing that a couple of times a day is 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 beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, what I would say is that we don't have any animal model studies yet. Um, we certainly don't have any clinical trials uh, in humans looking at biomarkers. So it's kind of early days um, uh -huh. with these data, but they are very promising, and I think that. Um, uh, they are consistent with what we know about vigorous intensity activity and heart disease. Um, so, you know, so I, I tend to think this is, you know, kind of a promising new avenue. And I think that importantly, behaviorally, um, it is, you know, I, I am interested in increasing the degrees of freedom by which people can adhere to an exercise program. Um, and if somebody listening says, yeah, I can do that. I don't want to do a half hour a day, but I can do that. More power. That's great. Yeah. yeah, it makes me it makes me think about um, my mother-in-law who loves to have spontaneous dance parties. She'll <laughs> just turn on the music, put on some jazz music and then just start dancing for a couple of minutes. She wants right. everybody to get up and have a party. And that doesn't sound like such a bad thing for a cancer yeah. patient to do a couple of times a day. And uh, it may actually even help you from a uh, an uplifting attitude perspective where you can laugh a little bit, which we know right. laughter is beneficial for as an anti-cancer strategy. And so, you know, pulling all that together into a two minute dance party a couple of times a day might not be a bad way to start. Well, and so you're, you're inspiring me to talk about, you know, exercise as play. And, you know, one of the things that I have a colleague, Chris Yamana at Penn State, who um, thinks that we've really missed the boat with saying exercise is medicine, because then it's like exercise is medicine, you know, it's very, you know, it's very serious and, you know, um, it doesn't need to be. And I think behaviorally, if people are thinking, I get to play, I get to do something that is play, mm -hmm. they're more likely to do the exercise and adhere to the exercise as opposed to, you know, I must do, you know, 30 minutes of walking, you know. That's um, a really good point. It's a really good point because, okay, I, 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 I have a meditation that I do. Um, I listen to someone who's a student of Wim Hof and he's got the best voice I've ever heard. And mm -hmm. so I'll listen to this. And at one point, um, he says, okay, so has you tracking what's happening in your body? And at one point he says, okay, now just put a small smile on your lips, just a little one, and that see is. if that makes you feel differently. Yeah. And I'm always amazed at how yeah. it does. Just yeah. putting a little smile on your face and how you can just, your whole body feels a little different. And I can imagine that if cancer patients are thinking about moving as something they get to do as, as, as a, as a get out of jail free card or a, a hall pass, right? Like a free pass <laughs> out of school for a little while, out of your job for a little while to go have fun for a few minutes, uh, a few times a day, you know, that might make them feel different inside. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think, I think we all feel better when we move, but I think that if we can find ways to move that um, are social and that um, connect us to, you know, other people that we love, um, you know, I think that the likelihood that, you know, we know that, you know, when people have social support around their exercise, um, they're much more likely to adhere to it. So do you think that patients and, and, and people know that um, 
exercise is beneficial to cancer? I don't. I don't, unfortunately. I think that the average person on the street, if you walk up to them and say, hey, you know, your Aunt Betty has ovarian cancer um, and she's going through chemotherapy, do you think it would be a good idea for her to exercise? Most people would think you're odd and say, no, she should have a blanket over her knees and a cup of tea. And um, so, so I think we need a paradigm shift. Our ev evidence base and public knowledge do not match at this time. And I like to tell a story to explain this situation. In the 1950s, um, uh, sitting president Dwight Eisenhower had a heart attack. Um, people don't remember this, but he did. He was sitting president. Imagine that today. That would be such a media hoopla. Um, <laughs> frenzy. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, so he had a heart attack and his uh, cardiologist uh, at Bethesda Naval, uh, Paul Dudley White, very famous cardiologist, was sharply criticized for getting him out of bed so soon, three weeks after his heart attack. Which today we all say, oh my gosh, you know, we get people out of bed the next day, we get people out of the day, you know, out of bed, you know, within days of having a heart attack. And we know now that exercise is quite good to repair a damaged myocardium, a damaged heart, right? And so, you know, if you ask the average eighth grade educated person in the United States, is exercise good for the heart? They're going to say yes. And they're going to, you know, if you ask somebody, somebody had a heart attack. Um, should they exercise to recover, they're going to say yes. The American Heart Association has done an outstanding job over the intervening decades getting that message out. They have beautiful programs all the way down to junior high students to help uh, people in the United States to understand the connection between exercise and heart disease. Okay, so we need a similar paradigm shift. We need, uh, you know, an army of people to help us. and We need large organizations to help us to um, help patients and frankly, uh, clinicians, um, nurses and doctors to understand that exercise is valuable for people living with and beyond cancer. Excellent, excellent. And it is doable. It, it really oh. is doable. Um, okay. It's just going to take some dedication. So we hope to be a part of that. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this has been an incredible conversation. Um, I. Thank you so much for all of your time. Um, I want to uh, just wrap up um, and ask you um, if there's first anything that cancer patients can do to help you reach your goal, how can we help you in getting exercise approved as an important treatment in standard care for cancer patients? Demand of your cancer clinic that there be an infrastructure and actual human beings to help you with your exercise. Okay. Make sure that they that your that your cancer clinic understands um, that it is not good enough to hand you uh, a, a prescription and it is not enough to hand you a brochure. That you actually need an infrastructure. You need a program, and it can't be just Tuesdays at seven o'clock at night. And there needs to be more infrastructure. For, for exercise. There needs to be rehab navigators and there need to be people to actually offer you programs. Is there a place where we can direct them to? You know, is there an infrastructure through, I don't know, American Cancer Society or something like that, that where if they need help figuring out what that infrastructure should look like, uh, where they can go? Well, there's a place we've we've actually searched for and identified. There's a directory of 2,133, not to put too fine a point on it, but 2,133 uh, programs um, that are 
cancer rehabilitation and exercise oncology programs across the United States. That directory is available. Um, you would Google for ACSM, that's American College of Sports Medicine, and moving through cancer. Um, note that we've triangulated everything around the phrase moving through cancer, yeah. um, the book, you know, the initiative at ACSM. Um, and so there is a directory there. Um, and, you know, I'm not hard to find on the web. Um, folks can certainly email me if they have questions about how to get a program set up um, at their particular cancer center. I, I'm happy to be helpful. That's awesome, um, because I, I think that it is really powerful when cancer patients can come in armed with a piece of paper to say, and if you don't know how to do this, contact this person and they'll help, uh, you know, they'll help get it done. Right, right. Um, so that's that's awesome. So all of you cancer patients out there, yeah. it's, we, we can are, help. I, I lead the Moving Through Cancer Task Force, which is a consortium of, you know, international consortium of uh, uh, experts, you know, including a medical oncologist, a, an oncology nurse, uh, physical therapist, uh, lots of exercise physiologists, you know, there's behavioral scientists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, we, um, we are writing a national coverage determination uh, application to CMS to get um, uh, Medicare coverage for exercise oncology uh, through CMS. And um, would be great to get a couple of patient advocates um, on board to write testimonials to say, this is really important. Um, we really want this to happen. That's that's wonderful. Um, I will make sure that in the show notes um, and on the website, outperformcancer.com, that all the information is there um, so that people can uh, can look it up and we can redirect things back to you. So that's, okay. that's super exciting. Um, and then Finally, can you wrap us up with, you know, a one to two minute summary of what should every cancer patient know about exercise and cancer? You are going to feel awful as you go through your cancer. This is true. You have choices. You can decide that you are going to feel awful as you go through cancer and lose function and muscle, or you can choose to try to stave that off. When you are done with your cancer, I guarantee that you are going to have lost muscle and function. The amount that you lose depends on you. I absolutely understand that for some people, this is just not tenable. In that case, get going afterwards and regain all that you can. I never want to prescribe something to someone that is not possible. So I do understand that some people are going through a type of cancer treatment that it just simply is untenable for them to exercise as they go through. But for those of you that can, I guarantee you, it will make you feel better. Thank you. What a great, what a great conversation. I think we're going to help a lot of cancer patients. Um, and I just really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. And now an important announcement. All the information that was provided today was for educational purposes only. I'm a patient, just like you. I am not a licensed or accredited physician, therapist, or clinical researcher. All information provided is not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, therapist, nutritionist, or any other qualified healthcare professional.